Happy Friday. It is June 5th, 2020, and this is the podcast edition of New Mexico in Focus for this week. I'm executive producer Kevin McDonald and your host. We had a week unlike many other that any of us here at the show have ever experienced. Uh, everything happening fast and furious. Uh, one thing you'll notice is first week in a long time where we're not leading off the show with COVID-19 news. And that is because of the Black Lives Matters protests that have happened around Albuquerque and around the state this week. Very fortunate for the most part that there have not been the sort of flare-ups and confrontations that we have seen in other parts of the country. But the dialogue and the conversation over racial equality is something that is definitely being driven here in New Mexico as well. And we are going to talk a lot about that on the show this week. Of course, this week was also primary week here in New Mexico, a primary unlike any other, and a little bit more interesting, I think, than a lot of folks predicted with some of the outcomes and results. We'll be talking about that as well this week, and we'll also be talking about New Mexico's continued movement towards a full reopening of the state, as well as checking in in southwestern New Mexico and see how that part of the state is faring with COVID-19 as well. But we want to kick it off this week with Albuquerque Mayor Tim Keller. We got the chance to sit down with him for a few minutes, as well as the Chief Administrative Officer for the city, Sharita Neer. Uh, And it was a chance to talk to them about the city's reaction to the series of protests we've had and will probably continue to have in the wake of the uh, death of George Floyd in Minnesota. And one of the things we wanted to get into uh, had to do with an Albuquerque Journal editorial this week that called for a curfew in the city as well as at least the National Guard on standby to try to quell any violence or uprising or vandalizing um, that might happen because of the protest. Mayor Keller has so far not been willing or interested in going down that route, and so we'll talk to him about that, as well as uh, how he and his administration are looking to further the discussion that has been started by these protests moving forward. So here now is host Gene Grant. Mayor, I've got a quick question for you. By APD's own admission, they did let their guard down after the Sunday night march. What's been the conversation between you and Chief Geyer about that, and what's the plan going forward to keep that from happening again? Sure, you know, for us, uh, our plan is always to be as prepared as possible. And in any situation where we have things like uh, protests, but, you know, uh, potentially violence and so forth, the plan changes every day. So each day we learn, we talk each day, and we update sort of what we're doing. But, you know, we want to keep the protesters safe, uh, and we want to keep our city safe as well. And so our teams, the standard procedure is if there is ever violence, they will engage and just as best they can de-escalate and break up uh, what's happening. But otherwise, uh, they will uh, be on standby and let people express their uh, right to, to do free speech. So for us, you know, it does involve lots of resources and challenges and things like this. And inevitably, there's going to be, uh, there's, you know, hopefully just minor mistakes and small challenges. And I think in this world, no one ever wants to see broken windows at the chemo. Uh, but in the grand scheme of things, uh, I think our team and the peaceful protesters saved the chemo and no one was seriously injured. So these are you know, minor tweaks that are definitely expected during a time of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And so far, uh, I'm grateful Albuquerque has only had those incidents. As chief administrative officer, you work with the chief closely. Have you had conversations on this regard as well? We have, and um, I actually got a chance to spend an evening in uh, the control center where uh, all the different agencies get together and make sure that, the, as the mayor said, those tactical plans are rapidly evolving and the lessons learned uh, each day of the protests have been rapidly incorporated into the way we're doing things now. Mm-hmm. I think you can see the, the evidence of that and the fact that we've had two days of peaceful protests that didn't have that part two where people took advantage of the situation to cause property damage. Gotcha. Picking up on that, Mayor, I appreciate uh, what Sarita just said there because we did have a peaceful protest in the rain uh, just a night ago as we taped this on Wednesday uh, early afternoon. 
But I'm curious, part of the route change to incorporate a bit of Lomas and then cutting down south towards Civic Plaza, is that part of the plan now to, to reroute some of the marching if it is to happen to be away from businesses? Well, I think for us, I mean, you know, in this kind of situation, we're not, we don't always know where folks are going. Uh, sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. And we always actually, if we do know the organizers at, at any level, you know, historically with all our marches, whether it's uh, around gun violence or women's rights, we usually do try and coordinate the route to keep protesters safe and also to block traffic. So if we're aware of a route, we try and make it safe for the protesters and the businesses. And it actually is kind of in the best interest of everyone to be aware of the route. When we're not aware of the route, obviously it makes it just a lot harder to keep everyone safe. Mm -hmm. And the goal is, is usually when we're using barriers to, is to uh, stop vehicular traffic so that the right. protesters are safe as opposed to trying to control where people are walking or marching. Yeah, in fact, we allow people to go through those barriers on, on foot. How closely do you work as an administration with the organizers? Do you get heads up on everything, on some things? How, how does that work? Well, I think it's a real mix. Uh, you know, again, we try and reach out as best that we can. And I think some of the groups, especially ones that have been more established or advocates that even I know from, uh, you know, when I was out there protesting after James Boyd, uh, you know, we try and have that communication, but we certainly, there's a generational issue uh, some of us are kind of aging out. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, uh, we certainly aren't in touch with everyone, but there mm -hmm. are certainly uh, some that we still are. There's now credible reporting out there that APD officers were seen meeting with some guys that are part of a so-called militia group out there. Take care of each other and, and they think, take care of the people in Albuquerque. And some, some of these guys are just dummies. They see crime of opportunity. It started, it's roiling the community in, in quite a bit, quite a ways because the pictures just are not great seeing men with long guns and, you know, camo out in our streets during a peaceful march. What's your, what's, what was your reaction when you saw that, Mayor? It, it was completely inappropriate. And okay. I'm frankly grateful that it was caught on video and shared with us uh, because we probably would never have known about it if it hadn't been for the folks in the community who trusted us enough to share that information with us. Those officers are under investigation. Their actions were completely taken on their own and not directed by APD. And APD renounces any um, vigilantism or use of, um, what, you know, people are, have their rights, but open carrying at uh, protests has a tendency to escalate rather than de-escalate the situation. And de-escalation is of course always our goal. Hopefully this is an example where we know these challenges are gonna occur and we wanna know about them right away and then we wanna take action. But I also know and there's enough uh, inherent chaos and things like this that like these challenges are gonna come up. We hope and believe that they'll be small and uh, that we can take care of them right away the next day. And so, you know, I, I, I'm sure there are gonna be other incidents, but it's our job to do everything we can to prevent them, but also to stop them as soon as we hear about them. And that's what we'll keep doing. Gotcha. Let me talk about the damage uh, that happened in the uh, part of the court of uh, central downtown. Is there a notion to perhaps help out some of those business owners that lost some very expensive windows downtown and that may or may not be covered by insurance? Might the city be able to help out in that regard in some ways? Absolutely. So the morning of, we sent our crews out to uh, clean graffiti. It was all gone. Uh, by the time I got down there at about 11, we uh, assisted with boarding up windows. And then uh, business owners who have been affected by these uh, incidents are to call 311. And we'd be happy to share any other resources that we can to help them get through this. Gotcha. Mayor, there's been a call uh, from the Albuquerque Journal that perhaps the National Guard should be um, put on standby of some sort and institute a curfew. At the time of the uh, printing, you were opposed to that. If there was another incident out there that was unexpected, would you in fact make that call? Well, I think we have to think through uh, what's happening nationally and what's happening in our city. And those two things are obviously very related, but they're also very different. And so what that means is that we've got to do what's right for Albuquerque. We have to carve our own path. Mm -hmm. And we saw during Corona, for example, we did our own thing and we demonstrated that we were a healthier city than most major cities. Right now, I decided that we should not have a curfew. And I think that is in sharp contrast 
to cities that implemented a curfew right away and are now more violent and more dangerous. And the message is being diluted by the violence. So that's why we did not decide to do a curfew. So we really want to avoid that. We don't want to do that. Now, if there's a situation, of course, where we actually lose control, right, where APD, not just for 10 minutes or an hour, but when we feel that we are out of control, we will act without hesitation to do everything we can to restore public safety. And that includes a curfew uh, in National Guard. But that really is a last resort. And I want to remind folks that it, it doesn't necessarily even mean it'll help. You want to, at that point, have every tool at uh, the city's disposal. But what we've seen in other cities, it has actually made things worse. And from a message perspective, it is completely distracting from the point of the peaceful protests. Mayor Tim Keller, Chief Administrative Officer, Serena Nair, thank you guys for spending some time with us. It's been a busy week for sure, certainly in your office. We appreciate it. Thanks, thank you. Jim. Appreciate you covering this. Thank Take you. care. Be safe. Absolutely. As previously mentioned, for the most part, the protests here in Albuquerque have been peaceful so far. There has been uh, vandalization reports of um, broken windows. Um, there have been a few arrests, uh, but um, in the overall scheme of things, it's not been as volatile as we've seen in other communities. Um, that doesn't diminish the message of the protests or the conversations that need to be had here as a community and as a state. We wanted to start that conversation here again this week on the show. So we asked some local activists, organizers, just good voices on this topic to really talk a little bit more about what the message of the protest is, uh, why now we're having those conversations, why not before, uh, and what we should be doing and talking about moving forward. So here now is correspondent Megan Kamrick with our group of special guests this week to talk about the Black Lives Matters protests. I'm Megan Kamrick. As protests have broken out across the state and country, organizers have struggled to separate their message from broader anger and especially from violence. I'm joined today by Karen Freeman, an organizer who has been involved in some of the protests in Albuquerque. Also, Finney Coleman, he's president of the University of New Mexico Faculty Senate. And Giovanna Burrell is culture change leader, the city of Albuquerque Office of Equity and Inclusion. Thank you all for joining me. Karen, you and others have very quickly brought together many people to protest the murder of George Floyd peacefully. What do you hope these actions can achieve in New Mexico? Um, if any, uh, our end goal is a uh, overall system change, uh, especially in reference to the policing system in America and the authoritative system in America. Um, uh, and the way that those systems are used in reference to uh, um, policing the black community. Um, and here in Albuquerque, we don't have a very large black community and um, we also don't face uh, the same brutalities and um, you know troubles that uh, larger cities and larger black po populations across America do with um, uh, their policing systems um, and those racial tensions have been there for centuries as well in those larger cities. Um, so here in Albuquerque, uh, we want to give our small population a voice and make sure that we're heard. Um, and, uh, you know, over the course of eventuality, uh, hopefully become in better contact with other movements across the, uh, across the states. And, you know, the goal is solidarity with our people um, in that sense, but it, it all we are all working towards the same thing. Um, I think if I were to point towards a resource that would give um, a good overlook as to uh, what I think our goals most most uh, line up with, um, the president of uh, the president of the NAACP just released a, a statement yesterday um, about um, his feelings on the subject and also where he stands with the protesters and why we're protesting. Um, and I think that uh, you explained it really well. We can put a link to that on our website. During several uh, evenings, there has been violence and looting after these peaceful protests have ended. 
how is this hurting your efforts to get your message out? Um, <clears throat> well, initially, uh, I think our greatest fear was that they would, uh, they would, they would pretty much kill our entire movement. Um, because the, 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 you know, the biggest problem is the fact that they could be, uh, kind of blended in with us. Um, and people recognize their movement as the same thing as our movement. And that's, that's not the case. Um, so in reference to the most, you know, the most damaging effects that it has is, is that is that people think that we're not, you know, following through with what we say we come to do, which is to protest peacefully and to make sure that our voices are heard and also to um, protect our community because we're citizens before we're suspects of anything that happens here. Um, and we love our city, so we're not here to destroy it, you know. When you love something, you hope to see it be better. Uh, and there's like like I said, we're 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 very grateful and um, blessed to live in Albuquerque because we don't we don't have a lot of the um, you know direct trauma and direct issues that um, larger cities are dealing with right now. But we do have them, and they're still present. And as Black people, you know, we're a part of that struggle no matter where we are. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I just want to jump to Professor Coleman real quick. Um, we have been here many times before. But the scope of these protests, they reaching around the world right now, feels different. Is this different? And does that mean that change is actually possible? I think it's different in the sense that uh, the context for this is unprecedented. We've never had um, the kinds of things happening alongside this horrific murder uh, in the past where you have an administration that has um, seen fit to literally use the power of the presidency to deprive people of their First Amendment rights. Um, we've not seen this kind of economic crisis um, uh, so quickly in our country, and certainly all of the pressures that come along with COVID-19. But I want to be clear that these, these, this movement, um, if it feels different, um, it's only because of the circumstances. There are many of us who've been around for a long time, and this is a re repetition. When Trayvon Martin was murdered, we thought, well, we're gonna, this feels different. There's going to be change. When Mike Brown was murdered, we thought, hey, maybe there's this, this, this feels different. Um, Eric Garner, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and again and again, we've come back um, to the same violence. Um, and then probably most disappointing, the same surprise in the nation that these things continue to happen in black communities. Um, a lot of white allies against racism are reaching out right now and asking what they can do in this moment. What would you answer? Well, you know, that varies from one individual to the next. I always begin with the notion of, you know, you have to look at yourself first. And uh, I, I encourage anyone who's really interested in helping other communities to first look at themselves and make that self-assessment. Uh, the Harvard IAT, the implicit assessment test, will allow people to get that baseline to look at their implicit biases um, and then to use that to help make some of those things explicit. Um, but the most important thing that allies can do is listen to our youth. Kieran, uh, Giovanna, I mean, uh, it, it, what they have to say is extremely important. You've been listening to old heads like me for a generation now. Um, our youth have a great message to share with us and we need to listen. So if you want to do something, listen to what they're telling you because what they're telling you is their truth and it's an important truth for our future. Giovanna, it's a great segue to what you're doing. Your role in the city is pretty new. Changing culture is hugely challenging. So how are you looking to do that going forward in this crisis? Yeah, like first it, it, doesn't, it doesn't happen overnight. It's not even gonna happen in the role that I'm in and for however long, you know, it, going back to what Dr. Coleman's saying is really helping people look in themselves and how do you dismantle the racism and the patriarchy and all of these systems that are holding us from our humanity. And so really looking at that within yourself. And so also 
calling out institutions for their role in structural racism as well. And these are hard conversations. These aren't easy, like, okay, well, we understand um, the oppression that institutions have put on people, people of color, black communities, but really saying, okay, we recognize it, now what? We can't just talk it, we need to walk the talk. And so I do believe that is a part of that culture change, but also collective work. It can't just be done within the institution. It also needs to be done with community. It also needs to be done within ourselves. So I think that's important for us to not forget. We all have a role in this change just because I have the title of culture change leader. I'm not doing this work by myself. You know, I need the community to help and do this work within the institution. And so I also need people within the institution that are doing this work and using their voice. So it's not this dichotomous, you know, one way or the other. We've got to look at it collectively together. How are you trying to create space for that right now? Yeah, absolutely. So creating space. We just started our equity training initiative that started in January. And basically the main thing is normalizing conversations because a lot of people are even scared to say the word race. They don't wanna be labeled as a racist and not understanding the history of race and how it's constructed. And so bringing those dialogues where people can have those light bulbs go off of like, oh wow, what was my role? what can I use with the power that I have in the role within the institution to make change? And so this starts off with just reading some articles. So I'm just reading right this week today, we have a session with Ibram X. Kendi talking about his work about how to be an anti-racist and what does that mean? And so also breaking down terminology, we can have all the language, but still perpetuate <laughs> um, these systems. And so it's important for us to have a common language and helping people understand what do we really mean when we say diversity, equity, and inclusion? Are we just saying it? We need to have action behind it. So that's kind of how I am formulating this culture change, but also with the support of community partners that are helping do this work with me so it's not just me doing this work as well well i hate to say this but we have run out of time but i would like to continue this conversation on the web um and if you will stick around i want to thank all of you for coming and talking with us and this will not be our last conversation for sure about this There's never enough time to have these kinds of hard and difficult but important conversations, but we did spend a few extra minutes with our panel of activists and organizers talking more about Black Lives Matter and uh, racial equality here in New Mexico, and we want to take this podcast as an opportunity to play you some of that as well. Megan Kamrick uh, talks to folks a little bit more about their ongoing efforts in this area, as well as... Um, some really poignant thoughts on what gives each of the panelists some hope that we are on the precipice of some real change in this area. Here now again, Megan Cameron. Thanks for sticking around with us for a web extra. Um, Giovanna, it's hard to not find an organization or a company that is not doing diversity training or some form of that idea. Clearly, there's still a long way to go to make space for this. Uh, I think about um, the instance before, uh, it's about a week before maybe, um, George Floyd's death, the incident in Central Park with the woman calling the police on the black man who was out birding and using very deliberately uh, her privilege to invoke possibly the police to come, which could have ended disastrously, as it has so many times before. Her, her workplace immediately fired her when this video went viral. Um, but, you know, there, like many workplaces, probably had this kind of training. Clearly, it's not working. So, <laughs> what do we need to do? I would throw that out to all of you. I'll start with Giovanna. 
Yeah, like this can't be a certificate. It can't be, yay, I did, you know, my diversity training. So now I must be free of all, you know, of racist behaviors. And that's not, that's not true. And so really voicing to people, this is a journey. There's not an end point. There's not, okay, we're done. This is an ongoing journey because racism evolves over time. Doesn't look like it did and 400 years ago it evolves and so we have to constantly keep working at it and not look at it as a way of a finish point so that's would be my response professor coleman what are your thoughts about that um i was talking with a, a few months ago layla saw who wrote a book called me and white supremacy and she said we've had a lot of laws and if that's all it took then clearly we wouldn't have racism anymore there are no simple answers uh, to questions like that. Uh, in fact, they're deceptively uh, complex. Uh, you know, custom has always trumped law in our society. Our laws have followed our customs more so than our customs following our laws. We typically do things and then write laws to, to match that. Uh, it shouldn't be surprising that white supremacy, racism, hegemonic masculinity, all of those things preceded the laws that enshrined them. And so it took some, and does, and continues to take work to, you know, um, to remove the law that, you know, custom still um, is still in place. You can change all the laws you want in the world. It's not going to change a thing. I, it's against the law for me to speed my neighborhood. I customarily, when I'm late, go about 40 miles an hour in a 35 mile an hour zone. So, you know, we, we break law on a regular basis. Um, it's our customs, customs and practices and privileges that we have to have to question if we want real change in America. Karen, do you have any thoughts about that as you're engaged right now um, in these protests? Um, I, I think uh, both uh, Giovanni and Professor Coleman um, do answer that question really well, especially in reference to um, staying educated um and, and knowing the subject in which you want to change um a lot of a, a lot of uh the issues with um inequality and um the the problems that a black the black community faces has to do with lack of education not only within our own community but um just across the nation um in schools american history is taught in a way that doesn't um tell the whole story about uh, American history in reference to the struggles that African-Americans have gone through, <clears throat> not only through, you know, slavery and everything else that we've had to deal with, but it's kind of the way that the story is told. It's almost like it goes from slavery to Dr. Martin Luther King, and we kind of skip a lot um, about what the, sto the story is based in and, you know, what our history is, because in order for anybody to actualize and, um, you know, gain momentum in a movement, they have to have understanding of what the history is and why they're fighting a certain thing. So I would, I would, I would agree wholeheartedly with um, the first two statements by Giovanni and Professor Coleman that it really is about that self-evaluation um, and making sure that the, if you want to be a part of this movement and you want to support Black people, or if you're a Black person who is trying to find their voice, then it is extremely important to be educated on the subject and to seek out resources that can give you knowledge um, consistently, like Giovanni said, because this is not a goal-based fight where we suddenly stop at some point when we achieve a bunch of stuff. It's, we move with this thing because it's constantly moving with us. Um, Giovanna, where do you find hope right now? Whew, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, I, I look at the resilience of my ancestors. That's where I find my hope is in that, but then I also see the hope in also generations of the future as well. And also realizing that we, we all have a role in this and not to um, look down at how people are showing up. People are showing up in different ways, whether that's at protests, whether that's donating money to Black-led organizations, whether that is using their voice within institutions that they're working for and pushing that way. There's so many different roles. So that gives me hope that there's different voices everywhere 
and just that resiliency of my ancestors because of the struggle and the trauma and the pain. And so I'm here in this moment as a black woman in this country. And so that is what gives me hope. Professor Coleman, what about you? Well, for me, um, I always look to our children. Um, you know, for me, the third graders this year are a wonderful crop of third graders. They haven't been taught to hate. They love each other, independent of who, um, of, of, of who that person is that's next to them. Um, the thing that's sad about that is every generation of Americans has produced that, that crop of third graders. And unfortunately, they, they've been taught to hate, taught to discriminate. Um, we have to, to stop doing that. I, you know, I'd like to, if I can plug um, something that I'm working with, um, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, the state of New Mexico this year only approved one charter school in, for the entire state. I, I chair the board of that charter school, ACES Tech, and that school comes online this coming fall. And part of our ethos, undergirding ethos at ACES Tech, is that every kid has a talent, that every skill, every, every kid needs, of course they need skills, but that we can develop those kids, we can teach them, make sure that they aren't um, being taught the most of these heinous lessons about uh, racism and bigotry and homophobia and uh, you know gender discrimination and the like. So that school um, is in the international district or will be in the international district and we're targeting trying to get as many of our kids um, who are students of color um, to participate in that school. But all students of course are welcome at that school and uh, for you know, the, the type of education that you would typically typically get at, say, the Bosque School or uh, Albuquerque Academy, how do we offer that to our broader population? And that's what we're trying to do at this charter school, ACES, ACES Tech. We opened this fall. That's great. That's great. We'll want to touch base with you on that um, when that gets going. Kieran, what about you? Where are you finding hope or optimism? I, I, I relate to what Giovanni said um, in finding hope in my an ancestors. Um, my, life, my last name is Freeman, um, and my family escaped slavery within the last four generations. Um, and they did that themselves. You know, they, uh, it, it, every, everybody has their story, I'm sorry. But um, especially when it comes to where their family comes from. But, um, I find hope in that and also in the immense amount of support that uh, we've received over the past like five days. Um, I think the movement in Albuquerque is uh, immensely powerful and I, was, I wasn't expecting the amount of support that we got when people started showing up. But that's what gives me hope is the fact that people, people are mad, people are so mad and they're so sad and they're also, you know, a lot of people share the fear that we have. Um, because that, that is an extremely large part of, you know, why we do this is we're, we're scared for our lives and we're scared for the lives of our families and our friends and our, our communities. Um, and I find hope in the fact that people, people see that and, uh, they don't want us to be afraid anymore. That, that means something. So I find hope in the fact that people are listening, but there's only so much you can do when you listen. So I'm very hopeful for, you know more listeners and more action um, in the days and weeks to come. Well, I wanna thank you all so much for showing up and talking about this. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. We were also working this week on a segment that will air next week. It's about health and well-being and keeping your mind and your body active during the COVID-19 outbreak, especially from the cultural view of Native, Mer Native American communities. Correspondent Antonia Gonzalez helped us put that together. Look for that next week on New Mexico in Focus. But the group that we had together were also a group of activists, and one member of the panel was actually a former resident of the city of Minneapolis. So we thought we'd take a few minutes to get some perspective on from the Native American community about the Black Lives Matter, uh, Black Lives Matter uh, movement and how it is alike and different from some of the struggles in the Native American community in terms of racial equality. Here's Antonia Gonzalez. 
Justin, Christina, Lauren, thank you for joining us this week on New Mexico PBS. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you for having There's us. There's a lot going on across the country right now um, having to do with uh, the Black community and also involving people of color um, when it comes to violence and police departments. And uh, Justin, you are worked and lived in Minneapolis and you know that native community there well. Go ahead and share some words. Well, it's been a mixed bag of emotions, both uh, unfortunately sadness to see our communities there in Minneapolis uh, experiencing once again brutality at the hands of the Minneapolis Police Department. Uh, I lived literally uh, several blocks from the uh, from Cup Foods there where the uh, murder happened. Um, at the same time, I've been extremely encouraged and filled with my heart filled seeing the Native community there, particularly along Franklin Avenue and the American Indian Cultural Corridor, uh, Pow Wow Grounds Coffee Shop, all my relations, Art Gallery, the Indian Center, uh, just coming together both as a community to protect, to literally physically protect uh, the properties that are of the community there. Um, and then, unfortunately, we had one of our uh, community institutions there burned. Migazi Communications was burned to the ground, a long-serving organization. And then you saw hundreds of thousands of dollars being raised literally within several days to begin to rebuild. So it's this mix of both the unfortunate, but also you see the Indian community once again rise through strength and resilience and collectivism to... to uh, roll their sleeves up and to protect, to connect, to encourage, and, uh, and that includes encouraging and standing with our uh, Black relatives. And so I, uh, I'm, I'm thousands of miles away, but uh, I have to say that I'm trying to take the positive, and I just think that um, through these types of situations, the Indian community continues to be stronger, and man, to see the young people coming out and just standing strong and, and being on the positive side of, of what's going on has been awesome. So my hat's off to the Minneapolis and the Native community there for how they've exemplified community and community togetherness uh, in the right way. So uh, my hat's off to them. And Christina, with your advocacy work here in New Mexico through Three Sisters Collective and the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Movement, you. Um, are often standing up for Native rights. What are your thoughts about what's going on? Oh, of course, it's really heavy. And I think we're all feeling, um, we're all feeling really emotional. Uh, but this is our time to stand up uh, and support our um, Black brothers and sisters. We have a lot of mixed race Native folks, and we got to check in with them and um, support them. And if we want to do any actions or alliance ship, make sure we decenter de ourselves right now and uphold the Black community and ask for guidance if we do want to do anything. So I don't think we should be trying to initiate any actions rather asking or finding ways to support uh, the Black community and the actions that they're engaging in and offer support in a mindful way that is not centering our struggle. Obviously our struggle as Indigenous people continues and we have a lot of uh, similar issues at play, but um, now is not the time to assert our Indigenous uh, um, platform right now. I think we really have to stand in solidarity with the Black community and elevate them to the best uh, way we can. And Lauren, you're also known for your advocacy and your work with youth and elders and also standing up for Native rights. What are your thoughts? Not only is it tragic, but it's exposing a lot of truth in our society, in our nation, in our governments. And it's also telling us a tale that many of us of color people, especially Native people that we've heard over and over and over again. And our historical trauma is relived and we're re-triggered consistently. And for that, it can be exhausting or the world around us can exhaust us. So the, the matter of, of staying the course, understanding the issues, understanding the truth, understanding who you are, where you come from, who you represent, and doing that in the best way to help our people, to help our, our youth, to help our communities, and also to defend the sacred, to protect the sacred, and also look out for our homelands and our people that are here, and for everyone else that has been affected by police brutality. 
it's it's real it's there this is in our face and i think a lot of people are realizing the truth and once that the truth is really exposed it creates a hurt for everybody it, it, even right now it's hurtful talking about it because i live in a border town and we are just one incident away from a minneapolis incident coming to any border town on the indian country so these are these are truthful things and we got to be mindful about how we are going to be proactive and how we're going to take a positive input and impact into this. Well, thank you everyone for sharing your thoughts and words of encouragement today. Thank you. We will of course have much more on Black Lives Matter and these important protests and conversations that our state is now having um, in the coming weeks and months for sure. Also wanted to point out that Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham held a special Facebook Live event on Wednesday afternoon with some leaders from the African-American community uh, to talk about her efforts. Uh, one of the interesting things to come out of that is the possibility of a uh, public health um, crisis status for uh, racial equality here in our state as well. And so I encourage you to head to Facebook, our Facebook page, to hear what she had to say there as well. Right now we're going to shift gears, though, to one of the other big stories of the week, which was primary. The primary election was Tuesday, and of course with the COVID-19 outbreak, a lot of the voting had to move to absentee uh, ballot. And um, the, t the main takeaway from that, as you will hear, is that uh, we had big turnout, actually. Um, turnout being an interesting phrase when you talk about voting by mail with your absentee ballot, but it seemed to be that voters were pretty um, mobilized and excited to make their voice heard, uh, even despite the COVID-19 outbreak. And there were some surprises in the primary night voting, some of which still has to be completely finalized. That should happen this weekend. But uh, it seems like we have a good picture of what's going on, including a progressive wave in the state legislature, some big names, so-called conservative Democrats that didn't make it out of the primary race. So let's head to the line panel now to hear some thoughts and reflections on primary night. Joining uh, uh, Gina Grant this week on the line opinion panel, regulars Laura Sanchez, as well as Dan Foley. And we were also excited to have Lana Atkinson with us again this week. She is a political science professor at UNM. The week's other big news happened on Tuesday as hundreds of thousands of New Mexicans cast votes in the state's primaries. There's a lot to unpack here, so let's get to it. Joining us this week are UNM political science professor Lana Atkinson. She's been watching both the voting process and the results closely. Line regular and former House Minority Whip Daniel Foley is back with us to help us sort through the races. We're very pleased to have another line regular attorney, Laura Sanchez. She's returning for another spin. Laura, good to have you. All right, progressives had themselves a night. After the dust settled, they unseated key conservative Senate Democrats, including John Arthur Smith and Senate President Pro Tem Mary Kay Pabin. Still Democrats in these seats most likely come November, but Laura, it changes the face of the political makeup of the Senate, doesn't it? It's very interesting. It does. Um, it will change the face uh, dramatically, I think, because many of these uh, incumbents that were unseated were chairs mm -hmm. of respective Senate committees. So we're talking about a whole new group one way or the other. Um, and so you saw a big wave of uh, definitely progressive candidates that took out Democrat incumbents who are more conservative. Mm -hmm. but whether they actually will be able to win in, in November is a different question. And I think a lot has to do with the turnout, the presidential election, and frankly, whether there is, uh, is still an, a vote by mail uh, plan, if mm -hmm. we're still sort of uh, dealing with COVID issues at that point. Um, but I think more than a progressive, uh, I mean, I, I think you you have to recognize that there's a progressive uh, wave, but there was also an anti-incumbent wave because if you look at some of the conservative districts, for example, Greg Fulford down in, um, in Jal in Lee County, Senator Fulford was unseated also by David Gallegos in the House. So that was not a progressive thing. It was a sort of anti-incumbent thing. Good point. So, um, and you saw some of that around the country with um, some congressional, congressional members uh, Republican members who were also unseated. So I think there was definitely a wave of, of change um, 
uh, going through this last Tuesday. Mm -hmm. Lana, I want to get to the ramifications for the general coming up here in just a little bit. I want to hold you on that for just a quick sec. I'm curious your thoughts, though, on the impact of votes for things like repealing criminalization of abortion. That was out there, of course. There was a very impactful vote uh, that sort of drove that. Marijuana, early childhood education. There were a lot of things on the table that folks wanted to see happen. Is that essentially what drove this as well? Yeah, I mean, I think the abortion issue in the Senate was obviously what drove this. A lot of money was poured into those contests. So there were uh, lots more money spent on the uh, new candidates running against the incumbents uh, than we had seen previously. Lots of digital ads, lots of mailers. There's a lot of activity around this. It didn't just focus on the abortion issue, mm -hmm. um, but I believe that that was the main issue, obviously, that led to the, uh, the interest in those, in those senators and also to the, their defeat. Mm -hmm. Daniel, pick up on that if you would, and I got a couple of Republican uh, results for you I want to ask you about too, but go ahead and pick up on where Democrats came in when it comes to um, these huge names that are suddenly not a part of our reality anymore. It's very interesting to kind of get your head around that. <laughs> What's your well, thought you know, on that? You know, if, you're, if you're a Democrat, if you're a chairman of the Democrat Party of New Mexico right now, you might want to be careful what you wish for, right? I mean, the, it's clear that the Democrat Party is moving to the left, becoming more and more progressive, which is fine. We've witnessed this in the Republican part, Party when we moved ultra-right and became, you know, with the Christian coalitions, doing the things they were doing. Um, abortion was a big issue back then as well, right? And, uh, you know, there were legislators that came in and all of a sudden, you know, the moderate folks start thinking, you know, I'm really not down with this. So, you know, I would tell you races like uh, John Arthur Smith, seats like Mary Kay Papin, seats like Clemente Sanchez, those are not seats that Republicans normally have a chance to go after with those incumbents. Mm -hmm. Now, the question is, never mind about the Democrats, are the Republican fielding good candidates? I mean, if you're feeling someone that moved into Deming three months ago, or you're feeling somebody that lives at the furthest outlier reaches of the, of the district, you're not gonna win. Now, if you've got some homegrown individual from Deming or someone from the center of Las Cruces or someone that actually lives in Grants, New Mexico, running as a Republican, you might have a chance to capture a seat right now. The question is, does the Republican Party put the time in to go out and get the right candidates for an opportunity like this, or are they just putting folks up? My concern is uh, the Republican Party has shown that you know their idea, their ideology right now was let's get someone to run for every seat. And when you get the when you have the plan of getting someone to run for every seat, you usually wind up getting anybody that'll run. Right. Hey, Dan, staying with you a quick sec, if you can keep this uh, fairly brief. I'm interested in uh, Laura mentioned David Gallegos and there's the Greg Schmidt's situation. Um, there were some Republican senators that got upset. What, what was your take on that? So first of all, I can't believe you came to me and said keep it brief, but I'll try. Um, you know, I think I think there's a couple of things, right? The first one is uh, you've got the, the uh, James White, which was a sitting senator getting beat by a sitting representative, I believe, or someone that had been in the legislature. Mm -hmm. So it's not someone that's a no name. Right. Uh, down in Hobbs, you got the Fulford deal. Um, you know, it's clear that, you know, the, the Senator Fulfor was a Democrat four or five years ago who switched parties and Steve Pierce of the Republican Party was not in favor of him. So, you know, look, regardless of whether you agree with parties, disagree with parties, if the party machine is behind you in a primary, you got a pretty good chance of winning the primary. It's the question is, can that party machine carry you through the general election? Gotcha. Lana, now I want to ask you about ramifications for Republicans on some of those high profile seats, especially down south. And Dan's take that, you know, be careful what you wish for. What's your sense of the possibilities in November? Well, I mean, you know, I, I agree that we've definitely sort of extended and expanded polarization in those areas mm -hmm. by you know, fielding more progressive candidates and, and definitely a conservative area. You can see the conservative, how conservative even Donyan is when they just barely pass a measure to, you know, wear masks. Right. Um, so there was a lot of opposition to that. So there, this is a very conservative area most conservative area of New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so you, we can expect a, a very large fight in the general. Now, I have not looked at those candidates either um, that the Republicans put up, and I do not know their qualities, and that's something that I, I, I need to look into, because I gotcha. think that is an important point. Are there good candidates? Did they feel good candidates? Did they think that those races would be lost? I do want to mention that uh, turnout was up, up, up in New Mexico, especially for Republicans. Turnout for Republicans um, at least we're still counting votes, so I'm not certain, but they were ahead of Democrats by about a point, and turnout was about 38 percent 
uh, for both parties if we combine them. So turnout was really up in this primary, which is amazing given that we really didn't have much competitive stuff going on. Isn't that something? That's very interesting. We'll see what happens when more numbers come out. Of, I think today, as we tape this on Thursday, and certainly by the end of the week, that's interesting. Laura Sanchez, let's look at some federal races. Uh, CD3, Teresa Ledger Fernandez won, and she beat a very high profile, well, uh, quite a few competitors, but obviously Valerie Plain was the most high profile. What was your take on the, on the race there? Well, I think certainly having, I, I lost count, I think it was like seven people in the race, um, right. <laughs> that the margin that you need to, to win by is, is much lower. I mean, you basically need to make sure that your votes are identified early, that you move them, that you continue to not lose ground with them. And I think that, you know, in terms of the party apparatus, I mean, Teresa Ledger Fernandez was very active um, in the party for a long time. She had been um, working the party, I should say, the party regulars. Um, so I remember uh, meetings going back pretty far where she had um, surrogates that were coming in and talking to people and trying to get support for her at a variety of events. And that's always helpful when you have um, that much of, a, of an operation early on. I don't remember ever seeing any Valerie Plame, any anyone sort of supporting her um, at some of those early, early meetings. And so that's an important sign, I think. Um, I Still, given that, it was hard to tell given all of the different um, commercials. If you don't live in that district, it was really hard to see who was going to come out. But I think talking to people who live in that district who are very active Democrats, they weren't entirely surprised. I think for me, um, what was also interesting is down south and what's shaping up um, given that's, you know, my home district down there. Um, now that we have, um, you know, the Republican uh, field set, um, it's going to be a rematch of last uh, last election um, between Yvette Harrell and Xochitl Torres Small. And so it's going to be uh, a very interesting, I think turnout will be high because of that, but also the presidential. And I think that's going to have an effect also on these uh, legislative races. So I agree with what uh, Dan and, and Lana have said as far as um, candidates. I do know just because I have an interest in the in the Deming race, and I I mean I don't think there's any surprise that I personally really respected and and I can say loved um, Senator Smith, and and I'm just hating seeing him go. I mean he's been in that office uh, since I was uh, like 14. <laughs> um, hey, you know I, I, Dan Boyd in the Journal made mention that there was 82 years of legislative combined experience that went out the door. Yeah. It was, and I mean, that means a lot. Yeah. For those districts, it means a lot. It's really going to change um, the legislature in general, regardless of who comes out. You lose someone with that much experience, and it's just going to, I mean, you know, I used to cynically say. Can, when can, I, I, can, I, can I hold you there? Yeah, I'm just running a little tennis. I want to get Lana in here real quick. Lana, can I get you to pick up on the Yvette Harrell race, the uh, Social Torres small race? Is the second time a charm for Ms. Harrell? Uh, it's, you know, it's going to be another close contest. Yeah. Um, hopefully we won't have the kind of aftermath that we had last time, but I think that it really is going to depend a lot. I mean, does the president come in and, and spend a lot of money in New Mexico, um, as he indicates he might, and what is the impact of that on those races? Um, clearly the Republican Party is jazzed in a way that it was not jazzed in 2016 in particular. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's going to be a clear, competitive and exciting contest. Gotcha. Daniel, one last one. Um, Mark Ronchetti, what are we to make of his margin of victory? Does it portend something for his race against Ben Ray Lujan, or is this just the primary? No, I mean, you, got, you, got, you got Mark Ronchetti, who was on TV with name recognition at the Yahoo to start. <clears throat> you have all the other candidates, zero little name recognition. Alicia uh, had great name recognition in a very small segment of the Republican Party, the pro-life movement. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see, listen, I am going to lay down this bet right now. You're mm -hmm. going to see some of the funniest snafu and commercials in the U S Senate race you've ever seen between Ben Ray Lujan and Mark Ronchetti when all this stuff gets going, those two guys are going to, it's going to be interesting to see what happens and how they go after him and what they're going to do on both sides. Um, you know, but I, you know, turnout was a big thing. I mean, the, the Republican primary was the largest turnout I think ever in a primary we've had in this in, in New Mexico in the history of keeping track of this, which is interesting news. It is. We're gonna have to follow up on that next week, I think. Lana's touched on this. I think there's something going on out there, right under our noses, very interesting. We'll have to leave it there for now, but in terms of the mechanics of voting, absentee ballots were the big story of the election as and they slowed down returns. And I may have correspondent Gwyneth Dolan grabbed a few minutes with a very busy Maggie Toulouse-Oliver to find out more.
Again, a bit of an unprecedented election on Tuesday in the primary race here in New Mexico. We wanted to catch back up with the Secretary of State, Maggie Toulouse-Oliver, to talk to her how it, about how it all went. There were a few hiccups as the um, impetus really became counting and tabulating those absentee ballots since so many people voted that way instead of in person to avoid COVID-19 exposure. Uh, there were cases where some of the... Um, County clerks, uh, after a long day, decided to head home and pick it up the next day, which led to some frustration. We're going to talk to Secretary Toulouse-Oliver about that. We will also be talking about uh, how this portends for the general election coming up in November. Here now is correspondent Gwyneth Dolan. Time now to head back to the line opinion roundtable for yet another huge story that continues to be a huge story in New Mexico. That is COVID-19. There was even more um, easing of restrictions and opening of businesses in the state this week. And we wanted to see what people's experiences were, how they think the continued slow reopening is going, and sort of where we head from here. We're now a couple weeks away from a special session that will be unlike any we've ever seen before, and we'll have some serious questions to answer in terms of uh, trying to get our budget back on the right track after all the economic de- devastation from COVID-19. Here now again is Gene Grant and The Line. All of a sudden, we find ourselves talking about COVID-19 as the last topic at our show. That's a good indication of the kind of week we've had, no doubt about that. But New Mexico started to open up a little further this week. It's too soon to know what kind of an impact that's going to have in terms of the virus spread, certainly. But how about economically? And Laura Sanchez, you know, there's a lot of things going on out there. You know, businesses are opening, but I think this new reality is showing a lot of businesses. This is a very hard struggle to do, to to pull off, just to open at 50% capacity and things of that nature. It is. It's really, it's a moving target for a lot of these uh, business owners. Uh, I think that there's, there's staffing issues. There's a question about whether they can get their same staff back. Some of them, mm-hmm. of course, we've heard um, are, st- they're able to, in some cases, get more in unemployment benefits than they get in tips, especially at a time where it's uncertain whether you're going to get the same uh, volume of clientele that you had before. So they're struggling with those issues. I think there's also, um, I've been to a few, I've tried to go out as much as I can in truth, um, because I'm just such a social person that I've missed, you know, being able to go out. Um, in any event, uh, you know, it's clear that there's some logistics issues with cleaning after every um, person or every party that sits at a table. There's just a process issue. And, and then you, of course, have delays related to that. And so I think there's just a lot of there's, you know, and I hate the term, but it's it's the new normal. It's something we're just going to have to all adapt to and figure out um, our way. Speaking of which, Dan, you know, I appreciate Laura finishing with that new normal uh, uh, thing that we're just so used to hearing now. But when you think about things like Santa Fe Fiesta Council, Zobra, all kinds of events in Santa Fe are canceled now. Balloon Fiesta is looking at their options. Uh, I'm leaving out a bunch, certainly. What can we reasonably expect in a few months? Is the new normal just honestly cl- clicking down all of our entertainment options to a, a, a low low ebb at some point? So, I mean, if you're asking me what we're going to do in New Mexico versus what I think we should do, I think yeah. there's two vastly different deals. Look, I think as is typical, we've lost all sense of reality in following science. Um, you know, you're looking at states where they didn't close down and weren't as dr- draconian in the rules. And, you know, they're not having the spikes that were out there. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a virus as... Wait, most I misunderstood. The, the states that didn't have draconian rules are not having spikes? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, you look at states like Florida that everybody said you're going to have this giant spike in two weeks after the, they had the spring breakers. Never happened. I mean, you go through, look at four, there's four states. And you look at states like Texas, you look at states like uh, uh, Florida. When you look at the percentages of people that are there and when they're having these giant spikes... It's nothing like like people have predicted for them. I think there are spikes. I wouldn't call them giant, but there's there's definitely been spikes in some of those. There's states always going to be uptick. It's a virus. We're all going to get it. There's no way to keep us all from getting it. So I think this whole conversation about saying, look, I mean, unless you want to lock yourself in the house and never leave, at some point we have to realize that we need to, you know, when you when you isolate the sick, you know, um, 
you know, when you take sick people and you, and you isolate them, that's, you know, that's one thing. When you take healthy people and isolate them, that's tyranny. At the end of the day, we're not doing anything to prevent these folks. Uh, you know, you look at what's going on right now. With, I, I, don't mean, I don't mean to laugh, but that use of the word tyranny is kind of cracking me up a little bit. I mean, tyranny, I laugh too. I'm, 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 I'm a student of history and tyranny comes is a loaded word, dude. It's uh, inconvenience is not tyranny. It just, I don't know. I don't want to get into that. But Laura's, uh, Lana, let me get you in here. Okay, so I guess I'm, I'm, so you interrupted me three times, so I'm I'm done with that one. Okay, thanks, Gene. Okay, I got I got I got to move on. We've had an outbreak in state prison in Otero County, Lana, and it's an interesting situation that uh, you know just a few weeks ago the governor was saying we had nothing in our prisons, and now we've got a whole situation where critics said it was just a matter of time. How does that change the game in New Mexico? Well, you know, I mean, in in terms of what policies the governor are going to do in terms of the greater community not not very much right it's okay. very isolated in fact it's sort of good news for the greater community obviously bad news for the prisoners and i sure hope they're taking care of them they say they have a plan but the, 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 interrupt. does that make the point that some folks including aclu wanted to, a more vigorous release program out of the prisons to keep it from doing its thing in prisons does this make well the, i mean i think you have to balance sort of public safety with you know these things there's a lot going on i you know i, I guess i don't uh I don't blame the governor for making the decision that she did. Sure. Laura, Laura pick up on that if you would, the uh, the idea of prisons and where we are on that. It, it's, it, I, I agree with Lana, it's a very difficult situation to manage. It is, and I hope that, that science is driving a lot of these decisions. I mean, I think that they have been, I think that, um, that there have been some um, you know, overly cautious situation. Well, I don't know if they're overly, but they're, they've been more cautious than other states. Mm -hmm. But I think they're appropriate for trying to avoid a real crisis here. I mean, it's clear that we have a shortage of, of healthcare, a shortage of ICU beds. The worst thing that could happen is that we have a terrible spike and then we're not able to care for the sick. And I think that places like prisons certainly are ripe for um, such close containment or close uh, contact with people that you could really have an outbreak and it would be just terrible. And I, I also believe that there's, um, you know, there's a variety of uh, infractions that people are in there for. And so some of the nonviolent ones, certainly some of the drug-related um, type of uh, uh, crimes are probably, you know, you can make a determination on people who are, uh, you know, balance that public safety with the need for public health um, and, and make a decision that way. But it's extremely difficult. And I think it, hopefully people are, are using science to uh, guide their decision making. That's a good point there. Hey, Daniel, I'm curious what you're seeing um, for the mask or no mask thing playing out as you kind of get out and about. What are you seeing out there? Uh, you know, I, I, I see most everybody's following it. Okay. Um, if you don't, you kind of get shamed into it, right? I mean, I've, I've seen people walking in the stores without a mask and everybody gives them a, that glare and looks right. at them. Um, other thing is, is the governor has made it clear that, you know, you have to operate with the masks in businesses. So lots of businesses will tell you, you can't come in unless you have the mask. And so, um, and I want to make it perfectly clear, Gene, I'm not saying that the governor's done a bad job. Mm -hmm. I think clearly when we did this, you got to go forward with it. And the other thing I would tell you is that, you know, what I was saying earlier is that, you know, the difference between quarantine and tyranny. Quarantine is when you restrict the movement of sick people. Tyranny is when you restrict the movement of healthy people. And I think we got to be careful of balancing. Are we telling sick people to stay home or are we telling healthy people to stay home? And if we don't get that clear, I think we're going to have a devastating effect on our economy at a time that we can't handle it, especially here in New Mexico. Good stuff there. Hey, guys, I want to thank you very much. It's an interesting week for sure. We'll have to leave it there. Correspondent Laura Pascas turned to southwest New Mexico this week, where Jeffrey Plant of the Silver City Daily Press talks about some of the political controversy and looks ahead to the summer tourist season down there, which will bring much-needed cash to the region's economy, but might have some people nervous about a bump in visitors from outside of the area. We want to end this week uh, on the COVID-19 front. We've been uh, really excited to be able to check in with reporters all over the state throughout the pandemic to focus and highlight their reporting and find out how some of the more re remote parts of the state that we don't often hear about, how they're faring with COVID-19 and the pandemic. This week, it's Jeffrey Plant with the Silver City Daily Press, uh, which is a really interesting area of the state. They had an outbreak in one of the mines down there early on, uh, and they're also a hotbed for outdoor recreation and tourism with the Gila River 
So a lot going on there, a lot of reliance on tourism dollars, and you're going to hear Jeffrey talk a lot about how that is a bit of a mixed bag for folks there, uh, wanting to keep the amount of bodies and, and exposure down while also relying on those tourism dollars. Here now is correspondent Laura Paskus. This summer is going to be a, a much different summer if people don't visit Silver City. So we're really relying on that here. And at the same time, as New Mexicans, I think we're all a little bit more on edge about the pandemic than maybe our neighboring states are. That's it for this week's show. We hope you enjoyed the content. So much stuff going on, and we will continue to stay on top of these big stories in the coming weeks and months. want to remind you that you can always follow along with the show. We've got even extra material this week we just didn't have time for in the show that you can find on our Facebook and YouTube pages. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. Wherever you go, just search for at NMNFocus, and you can find all of that material. Leave us a line. Let us know what you think. I want to point you to a Facebook Live we did on Friday tied to the protests here in Albuquerque. Host Gene Grant uh, talked to a pair of business owners who had their businesses along Central Avenue, uh, had damage to their their properties. And now, as we come to find out, this weekend, roads will be closed in into that area. So their businesses continue to be affected and have been affected by COVID-19. Some really interesting um, comments and thoughts about how they're going to pull through all of this as they continue to uh, try to make things work. So we encourage you to go watch that if you can. Also a reminder about the Your New Mexico Government podcast, a collaboration between ourselves, KUNM Radio, and Santa Fe Reporter. This week the episodes are all looking as well at the Black Lives Matters protest and not just the protest and the reaction to the protest, but the discussions about racial equity in our state um, and uh, as well as uh, communities' relationship to police, to police brutality, um, all sorts of uh, really ripe topics there that are important but hard conversations to have. encourage you to go check that out with host Khalil Ecolona. You find that on our website as well, NewMexicoInFocus.org, but you can also subscribe to that podcast at Spotify, iTunes, anywhere that you get your podcast. Just search for your NMGov. We hope you have a terrific weekend. We hope you stay cool. It's going to be a hot one. Most importantly, we hope everyone stays safe and healthy. We'll see you again next week.